Hello, everybody. Welcome to this session of the Planet Talks, which is actually a live version of my podcast, Wardrobe Crisis. I'm stoked to be here. This is the first time I've been at this festival. It's amazing. It's got such a beautiful atmosphere, and I love it. So thank you all for coming. So my name is Claire Press. I'm Vogue's sustainability editor. Who knew that that was an even a thing? It wasn't. It's only very, very recently that they have made this position, and it's very exciting to think that a mainstream fashion glossy, or as we call it, Vogue is the fashion bible, is having a sustainability editor and embracing this idea that we need to look at these things, at fashion, at clothing consumption, at production, through the lenses of sustainability and ethics and what's happening to our planet. So I'm very excited to have that position. Um, my, pod my podcast, Wardrobe Crisis... Oh, thanks. My podrobe... I can't speak. My podrobe... I'll say that again. My podcast, Wardrobe Crisis, is an extension of my book of the same name. And what I do is look at these issues of fashion through the lenses of ethics and sustainability. And I interview all kinds of different people, so it's not just designers. I interview artists, creatives, explorers. I've got um, an episode coming up with Tim Jarvis, the polar explorer. And Tim Flannery, there's an episode with him. Some of you may have been lucky enough to catch him on Saturday Talk here, and he's amazing. And we discuss climate change. Now, you might think, what's that got to do with fashion? The answer to that is, I can always find a question about clothes whenever I'm speaking to anyone. But really, it's that we all wear clothes. Unless you're a nudist, you're dressed in clothes. No nudists here. Put your hand up if you are. And if you're wearing clothes, somebody somewhere has made those clothes. They've sewn them, they've made them from whether natural or man-made fibres, and they've had an impact on the environment, and that impact's also been felt on workers. So these are really universal issues. It's not just about whether or not you're a fashion person. So that's my little rant. It's my job to make those connections for people. And I'm delighted to be joined today by two fantastic women who also work in that space, making connections between who makes our clothes, how, where, and from what. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, actually, I forgot to say an important thing. My podcast is free to subscribe to in iTunes, and I would love it if you would do that. Welcome, Gab and Meg. Now, these two extraordinary women made an extraordinary journey last year. In September 2016, they set off to walk through Southeast Asia, through Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand, about 3,500 kilometers. It took them a year. We're going to hear today how Gab Murphy and Meg O'Malley, calling themselves Walk So Good, journeyed on this voyage of discovery, I'm going to say. Who they met, what they found out about the fashion industry and how our clothes are made, and also about themselves. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Claire. I'm going to start with you, Megan. You were sitting on your sofa one day reading Dumbo Feather magazine when the universe sent you a message in the form of an article about an Indian adventurer, Satish Kumar. I wonder if you might begin by telling us, how did you feel when you read that story? Who is Satish Kumar and why is he so inspiring? So Satish Kumar is an Indian activist who in the 1960s walked, I think it was 8,000 miles across the world to each of the nuclear capitals to protest um, anti, well, to protest nuclear weapons, I guess. And um, he, it was such a peaceful and powerful statement. He met so many people along the way that he could engage with and talk to about this issue. Um, some women gave him some tea, tea bags, that he could give to each of the leaders of each of the nuclear capitals. Um, yeah, and said he said the women told him that when he goes to these capitals, give them to these people and then ask them to, before they press the button, to have a cup of tea, to reflect on the damage that could be done and all of the, the, the implications of pressing that button. And that was pretty amazing. And yeah, I just was struck by what an incredible statement it was. 
I did a bit of Googling about Satish Kumar, who I actually didn't know about until you introduced me to him, so thank you. But in the 60s, he was inspired by the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who at that time was in his 80s. And what Satish thought was, this guy's in his 80s, he's been sent to jail for protesting for what he believes in. What am I doing? And so that's why he set off on his journey. Gab, did you feel a bit like that? Is that what you thought when you read about his journey of 8,000 kilometres? And yeah. I wonder, like, at what point do you think, hey, I'm going to do that? Yeah, well, that was it. That was... I had exactly the same reaction. I thought, this man has done this incredible thing and I'm sitting on the couch reading Dumbo Feather, which is a wonderful magazine, but it's not really changing the world, me reading it right there. So, um, yeah, I instantly felt inspired. I don't drive, I don't ride a bike. I was like, I can walk. I can walk long distances, surely. Um, and I was instantly inspired to do it for something that I really cared about, which was sustainable fashion. And then I told my parents and my dad said, that's the most stupid idea I've ever heard. Um, and refused to talk to me about the idea until mm, a couple of months before we left. May I just ask, is it not true that you had never hiked for more than one day when you thought about going on this hairbrained journey? Very true. I'm not sure where this, like, confidence came from. I'm not normally a super confident person, but, yeah, I'd never done an overnight hike. Not that outdoorsy, really. Not into camping. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's why I was like, oh, I need someone to help me come along and survive because... Obviously, that could be tricky. And, yeah, so I roped Enter him. Gab. Enter Gab. I roped her in and, and pitched it to her. <laughs> okay, yes, Gab, I, what was your reaction? What was your I reaction and what did you This idea sounds absolutely crazy. I'm in. <laughs> 100% in. But I didn't actually know that Megan hadn't been on an overnight hike before. Yeah. And I discovered this... Oh, a yeah. long time after I'd said yes to the trip. And I said, Megan, let's do a blog post about our five favourite hikes and we can share it to our three followers. And <laughs> she was like, mm, that's going to be difficult because I have been on very few hikes. And I was like, you do realise we're going for a year, right? <laughs> so we did a practice at Wilson's Prom and it did not go well. <laughs> It was terrible. I had a panic attack and we had to go home a day early. Like, it was horrible. Like, <laughs> I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move. It was, yeah. And I wasn't very empathetic at all. I said, oh, don't worry, I have panic attacks all the time. Can you still see? Oh, you've still got your vision, you're fine. <laughs> This is why she needed you. We're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty about how it was to do that walk for a whole year. But I want to just ask you, Gab, what did you hope to achieve by Walk So Good? And perhaps you might like to share with us the point of it, the meaning of it, and what you did and what you tried to find out and share. Um, I think, for me, I, I was never really a, a huge fashion person, but I have a strong passion for human rights and for the planet that we all live on and share. And uh, just realising how harmful our... Um, system can be in terms of production and consumption. Um, the aim for Walk So Good was to collect human stories, make them accessible to people, and uh, really put a face and identity to the people making our clothes. And we wanted to promote people who were doing the right thing and share the positive stories rather than all the doom and gloom and everything's awful and you may as well give up because things are too hard and we're all going to die. So we wanted to really focus on people that aren't going against the grain of the big brands and that are, you know, upcycling fabrics and using solar power and treating their workers fairly, giving them maternity leave, like simple things that we probably take for granted in Australia. Video was absolutely key to your message because that's how you're disseminating these stories. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, like how you spread the word? Uh, so, yeah, the aim was to basically, yeah, share these stories in a way that was digestible. And um, people have very short attention spans these days. Uh, so having two-minute videos was a really good way, I think, for us, where we'd just have... Um, 
a quick introduction of who we're talking to, why they're doing what they're doing with their brands or as a sewer or worker and um, something that, like a little story that they have to and they bring them to life, which is nice. And it really works. And I would mm. encourage everyone who's interested, which is everyone, right, <laughs> to hop onto the Walk So Good website because you can watch these videos. And it's delightful. And as Gab said in this conversation around ethics and sustainability in terms of who makes our clothes, we often hear in the media some of the really grim stories. And we do need to hear them. We need to be aware of that. But it's very inspiring to then see the other side about some of the beauty of craft and some of the fabulous, inspiring stories about women being uplifted by the fashion industry and by economic empowerment that can come from making our clothes. But why did you go to Southeast Asia? What, tell us a little bit about the context. How did you decide where to go and why? <laughs> okay. Um, well, we, it would have been fantastic to have done the story in Australia, but the thing is we get a lot of our clothing from Southeast Asia in Australia. So a lot of our clothing is made in China and Bangladesh and India. And uh, quite often these countries are places where it is really easy to exploit human rights and it's really easy to exploit the planet. Um, so we wanted to go and see people that are doing the right thing even though it's, it's so easy to get away with doing the wrong thing. And um, especially in countries where there aren't many human rights and a lot of people aren't, um, there isn't any waste management systems in place either. Um, so yeah, that was a, a really big deal for us to go to these places where uh, people are doing the right thing even though it, it can be yep. hard. Um, and then in Asia, we, we were going to originally walk through Bangladesh and in India, but it was far too dangerous. And we are two very obviously white women. And we didn't want to put anyone else in danger that we were interviewing, because um, that's unfair, I think, on us, because we have the privilege of being able to leave da dangerous situations. Um, and so, and we didn't want people to get in trouble with government in China for being filmed and um, especially in factories and things like that. Absolutely. So we decided on, yeah, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos. I'm going to just throw this in here if people aren't aware that 92% of the clothing and textiles and accessories sold in Australia are made offshore. So we really don't produce very much fashion in Australia anymore. You began in Ho Chi Minh, is that right? Yes. I want to talk about, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of who they met and what they learnt, but I want to ask you about before you got there. Let's talk about the preparation. So you're walking six to eight hours a day, but I believe there were some 11 hour days. That's hectic. Yes. Let's talk about training. How did you prepare? Training. Do you want to go first? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't train at all. I basically indulged in as much food as possible because I was like, well, soon I won't be able to have access to any of this food and we're going to lose so much weight while we're walking, so I'll just put on heaps of weight. And that's what I did and I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was your training. <laughs> and then I was a little bit more serious. So um, I loaded my bag with textbooks and made it really heavy and then walked around my neighbourhood for five kilometres and then I went to the physio with niggly knee pains and she was like, ooh, five kilometres, maybe should up that a little bit. And I was like, okay, sure. So I would walk seven kilometres to the French bakery, have a break, seven kilometres back. And then there was like a chocolate shop that was just seven and a half kilometres away <laughs> and seven and a half kilometres. So it was, yeah, it was realistic um, because <laughs> we saw lots of French bakeries and yeah. chocolate shops. I love how your training was essentially both of you just baked goods. Yeah. That's how you do it. Let's talk about the 11-hour days. How hard was this mission of walking through heat when you're not an experienced hiker and you know that it's going on and on and on? I mean, this was a year. Let's talk about what it was like physically. Yeah, that, 
the the biggest day I think we did was 37 kilometers ish I think and it was stinking hot and we were walking into Phnom Penh so we couldn't just like set up a tent and it would be fine because there was no room to set up a tent and every time we stopped to ask somebody if where there was accommodation they were like just one kilometer just one kilometer and so we'd walk one kilometer and then we'd be like mm, nowhere to stay and then ask the next person just one kilometer just one kilometer and it went on for about so eight, long eight kilometers and we'd started off the day so strong we were like yeah we can walk we, we, we only walk to here and then we're like no let's keep going to Phnom Penh we can do this and yeah by the end I was like singing out loud the songs of Hamilton the musical <laughs> to try and keep me awake and sane um Gab had lost it she was like <laughs> get me to accommodation now and it was yeah it was really hard but we ended up getting pretty fit with some of the other days. Like, that was that was a unique situation. But, yeah, the heat was hard, though. Okay, let's talk about the benefits of walking. Gab, I would love for you just to share with us a little bit about the mindfulness of walking, the feeling that you can get from just, I'm going to say plodding, but, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and, and that repetitive action of, is it a moment where you realise that you're out of yourself and you've stopped perhaps being anxious? Let's talk about that. There's actually a quote um, from Satish Kumar, which I loved. And he says, by walking, you connect to the earth. Wow, that's perfect. That's actually what it felt like. Um, I don't think you realise how disconnected you are from the planet and the world around you until you are outside and living in it every day and you're so reliant on the weather and you're so reliant on shade so you don't get heat stroke and reliant on water supply um and we it became so meditative at the end of our walk it was it was almost as if when we had our rest days we got really like anxious because we wanted to be out there and and plodding along and just you become so mindful in what's going on around you you notice the rice harvest. We watched the whole rice harvest from start to finish in different areas. We, you know, noticed trees coming in. We noticed winds and rains and storms. And uh, it's something that I don't think we get access to in our daily lives here because quite often we're in buildings and go in buses and we're not interacting with our environment as much. And I think that makes it really easy to forget that we're living on this one planet with lots of finite resources so yeah it was interesting that we're promoting slow fashion and then by slowing down ourselves we realized how how important and how disconnected we had been because the walk originally was just a gimmick to get people interested it was like (laughs) we'll walk really far and then people will listen to us um (laughs) but it ended up being yeah just something so we'd walk through places that tourist buses would go straight through and we'd meet all these incredible people and yeah you just felt so connected to and you got a great understanding to the of the culture that you were in that you wouldn't get if you were just hanging out in the major tourist areas it was yeah it was amazing we should tell claire about the reactions that we got when we told the locals that we're walking because it sounds really weird but when you're in bangkok and you're like they're like, where are you going? And you're like, oh, we're going to Chiang Mai. And they're like, we're walking there, <laughs> which is like, like about no. 600, 800 kilometres. They're just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we get the thumbs up, strong lady. And then other times we'd be like, there's somebody would pull up beside us and be like, get in our car, please, free, 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 just get in our car. And we're like, no, no, we, we want to walk. We had to learn the word for walk in every single language we were there because so many people would stop to offer us lifts and... And give us food. Yeah, We got so many bananas and mangoes. We got to the stage where we would just have our morning tea break and be like, what'd you get? (laughs) And we'd, like, (laughs) share them. Yeah, and I don't eat bananas, so this one lady gave us eight bananas one day and Gab put in the effort and... (laughs) I ate eight bananas. It was a lot of potassium. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, good, good effort. (laughs) Meg, you have shared on your blog that you suffer from anxiety, that you're not the world's most chilled out person when faced with new situations 
or perhaps with stressful situations. I wonder if you might like to just share a little bit about how walking can help with that, because I think it's interesting, this idea of connection, slowing down. How did you feel when you were in these new places and you weren't necessarily sure where you were going to end up or if the meetings would happen or, you know, where your next banana was coming from? Yeah, look at me now. You can tell I'm not a... <laughs> And a bit of an anxious person, um, like solid rock. But um, yeah, because we only had to walk every day, the anxiety levels of the shoulds, like I should be doing this, I should be doing that, that was like, they didn't exist because you weren't writing lists to tick off. And, and that was kind of amazing. So that was great. For me, the anxiety came in the preparation and the, the practice hike. And um, all of that, that was, yeah, I, I, and I did what I normally do and over-prepared. But, yeah, the walking, I would get most anxious when we stopped in capital cities. Um, but, gosh, it's great. I wish I could walk that much every day because you, you feel so good and you feel healthy, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of time in your head. I got very bored of myself sometimes, so I'd whack on a podcast and um, be transported away. But... Yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. I mean, I got really anxious about eating because I basically ate rice and greens and egg for about 10 months um, <laughs> of the trip to the point where my body rejected it by the end. It was like, nope, not happening. Um, and I got really quite anxious about the dog situation. We were attacked by dogs nearly every day. You were attacked so by dogs. So that was fun. And Gab is like this weirdo. Like, she, these crazy, vicious dogs come towards her and she's like... and steps towards them. No worries. Whereas I'm like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, like, I had, we had selfie sticks, but we never used them for selfies. We just used them for self-defence. Like, we, all you had to do was just, like, raise them and then the dogs would we go away. We never dogs. hit any dogs, promise. <laughs> or, like, pretend to pick up a rock and then they'd run away, which is sad because that means they're being mistreated. But it was very helpful for not... Being dead. Yeah, but I also got bitten by a dog yes. at one stage. Very and dramatic. I had to get rabies shots at some very dodgy hospitals. <laughs> Cautionary tale. I'm not sure what it is. Always pack a selfie stick. Um, Megan, Be scared I want, of the dogs. <laughs> I want to get into this idea of slow, slowing down, but also making that connection with slow fashion. Gab worked for a time for a New York-based outfit called Project Just, which was, unfortunately, it's actually finished now, but it was a website which sought to be promoting transparency in the fashion industry and sharing information behind some of the big brands that you would recognise. And, and you worked for them, um, work experience, I believe. Were you working for them? Tell yeah. us a little bit about that, because what I want to know is, what's your take on why fashion needs to slow down and if you could look at that through the lens of what you did with Project Just. Yeah, so I think I want to probably read more sustainability reports for fashion brands than anybody on the planet. They are heavy reading and especially if they've been translated, oh, it's, it's good fun. But um, yeah, I was a head, a head of research at Project Just, sorry, and um, yeah, head of research for a while, we developed this strategy of analysing the brands and trying to work out how sustainable they are. And we developed this um, seal of approval. So the brands had to be like, they had to tick all these boxes. So they had to be great environmentally. They had to be treating the people fairly. They had to have intentions of improving. They had to have, you know, innovation involved in their brand. And we struggled to find brands that could fit those categories. There aren't a lot out there that are ticking all the boxes. And one of the things I realised on this trip was that it's okay not to be perfect. It's all a journey, um, to use that overused word. Um, and people are, are trying. As long as they're putting in the effort and it's genuine and it's heartfelt, as long as they're creating impact that is positive, it's okay that, you know, they haven't quite mastered the environmental aspect or they haven't quite mastered, you know, innovating magical fabrics. So, yeah, there's that. And then what I also found was when we came, I thought I kind of knew where my clothes had come from and how they were made. I mean, I read so many hundreds of, hundreds of hours of research. And when you get there and you see it being made and you 
you learn and you try to work out, like weaving, it's a magical thing that we saw over and over again. And no matter how hard I tried to get my brain to, you know, wrap around the concept of weaving, I just couldn't do it. And it, it was like magic. And connecting to those stories and connecting to how it was made, I don't understand, I don't think I could ever throw away something that I had that connection to, that, you know, that understanding of. We, we kept repeating that we wished that um, we could bring everybody along because, yeah, it, it is just... <laughs> With the weaving thing, like, they call um, weaving the traditional computers, like, the original computer, because weaving, it's, like, over and under weft and um, it's binary code. So it's uh, like one zero zero one zero. Warp and weft. Yes, yes, exactly. And so it was really fascinating. They're actually coding, coding their textiles, which is really cool. Okay, so Gab, is it fair to say you were not a big fashion fan before you embarked on Walk So Good? I mean, actually, you thought fashion was kind of stupid and that we needed much less stuff and that clothes didn't matter. Yeah, my solution was, oh, just stop making stuff. We don't need anything. Um, and I would regularly turn up to university in pyjamas. Um, that's where Megan and I met at a sustainability class, actually. And Megan always came to class looking fabulous and gorgeous, these beautiful outfits. I think I wore the same thing nearly every single class and, you know, hair all over the place. <laughs> You're also one of six kids, is that right? Yeah, one of six And kids. so growing up, you kind of shared clothes. You weren't really mm. running out to the shopping centre. I mean, did you grew up in, on a farm yeah, near Mildura? Yeah, so I grew up in Mildura on a vineyard there. And we have a really large family, so we had a lot of hand-me-down clothes and... We didn't have a lot of shops at the time and my mum, who's here today, she made a lot of my clothes as well. If I wanted something, we would make a trip to Spotlight and I got to choose the material and that was great fun. But I, I never really thought of clothes as art and now when I see it being made and see how much passion and work goes into it and see the beautiful outfits that Megan can come up with, it, it's really, it's art. It's art in the flesh, you can see it. And I love watching people at the festival as well. I've just been people watching and looking at all the fabulous things that people are wearing. Is that one of the things that changed fundamentally for you going on this trip? Mm, yes, definitely. And uh, I'm a bit of a pessimist and a, a cynic. But just a bit. <laughs> Megan called me worst case scenario Gab because every time I saw her looking at like a, a green puddle, I'd be like, don't look at it, you'll get dengue. <laughs> she was like, how can I get dengue from looking? <laughs> every time we would like feel, oh, no, we've got dengue. We've got dengue. We have dengue. We don't have dengue. <laughs> every time. All of the time. Yeah. Like, nearly every day like, towards Zika, the end. Zika. I was like, like <laughs> it was insane. Okay, but through all of that, having not got dengue, not got Zika, so, but you did have heat exhaustion, is it, let's talk about how a bit more about how seeing some of these embroiderers, for example, or going in to visit someone's house where they're weaving something and seeing the artistry behind that process and how connected people are to the garments that we potentially turf out after just four whales. How did that kind of change your thinking? Yeah, so uh, with the fundamental changes of how I think about clothes, uh, 100%, yeah, I have so much more respect for them. I really appreciate how they're made and the stories that come with them and the stories that are behind them. Um, and I, I guess our faith in humanity was also restored because when we were meeting these people, we didn't expect to have such amazing and deep connections with them. Um, and, you know, there was obviously language and cultural barriers, but at the end of the day, we had so much more in common than we thought we would ever have. And um, sharing food and sharing laughter and sharing a love of fashion with people who are making it with their hands was really amazing. I love it so much. It's my favourite. This is, this is why I like this conversation. It doesn't all have to be global warming's going to kill us. Probably is. <laughs> I'm a um, climate optimist. 
But I love these stories that really do uplift us because we need them. If we're going to change systems, we need to have hope and we need to feel that we have, I don't know, something good to get behind, don't we? But you know what we haven't done? We haven't explained and I haven't asked, how on earth you track down people? And I know that when you arrived in Ho Chi Minh, that you did do a bit of walking down the street, imagining that you would just happen upon an awesome seamstress who would say, hey, you look like you ought to come to my house. That isn't how it works, is it? How did you get access? Yes, yeah, so our expectations were a little unrealistic at the start. Um, but, so I reached out to everybody I could, all of my networks, trying to find anybody that could help us and then so brands are we talking brands. about fashion yeah, brands well here? some of the bigger brands that that you know market themselves as sustainable like Everlane and Patagonia we reached out to them unfortunately they declined to let us well Everlane didn't respond and Patagonia wouldn't let us um, go and visit their their factory I contacted the factory anyway but they didn't get back to us either um, so it was a lot of small brands a lot of small organizations we went to a couple of really big factories so we went to um, the factory that makes the girlfriend collective leggings um, and that was really cool and innovative and that was yeah it was cool to see it on a large scale but mostly it was small and then we did <laughs> we did think that when we walked through Vietnam, especially at the start, so we saw a few people in Ho Chi Minh, and then when we walked through Vietnam, we were thinking, we're just going to meet a person on the road who'll say, oh, my cousin does this amazing fashion thing, and come to my village, and we will, you know, show you, and you can interview, and we didn't speak to anybody, I think, that spoke English, except for when we did a quick um, couch surfing episode, but... um. For the first three weeks, no one spoke English to us and it was really hard. So was it literally about emailing brands before you went saying, we're not professional auditors, we're curious customers, we're fashion wearers and fans and we would like to see your process? Is that how you did it? I mean, yeah. it's quite, it's full on. We were just like cold emailing people and saying, can we hear your story? And most of the small brands, they don't have a huge marketing budget. Um, so they were like, yes, please come and tell our story. Um, and they were so, you know, welcoming and wonderful. But um, yeah, unfortunately, the bigger brands didn't want us to come to their factories, but that's okay. I know Next you don't time. know because you didn't have a response, but we did speak before the session about what we could guess might be some of the reasons that big brands wouldn't let you come and see their processes and we thought that maybe I mean do you want to share about some of your thoughts on that because it could be that brands are very careful about how their social media is curated and looks and so to have two unknown women come in who they're not familiar with who haven't gone through a PR or a uh, an NGO or a partner organisation seem to be a bit scary, I don't know. Or it could be they've got something to hide. I mean, what, what's your feeling on why it was quite hard to get access? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think it was because they had something to hide. I just think it's because we didn't have enough followers, um, which is sad. But, um... Yes. <laughs> Follow but, you know. so good on Instagram, <laughs> please. I think it had a lot to do with that and also how, you know, brand image and the control of that. Um, there's a lot that goes on into a brand image and it's not always, you know, dorks coming to interview people. But also, <laughs> it's quite weird. Like, I'm sorry, guys, but just two <laughs> random women just deciding to walk through four countries and their mission is to come and have a look at factories. It's not common. No. There's no precedent. Yeah, we got a lot of... Yeah, I don't, I don't think... And then people would say, yes, we're walking, and they say, oh, working, excellent, good job. Where are you working? And we'd be like, no, walking. No, working, yes. And they'd look at me like, we understood. Stop it. <laughs> okay, I want to just um, focus in now on some of the stories that you heard. Gab, would you like to share... Just pick a favourite. Tell us a story of someone that you went to meet who really inspired you. Oh, gosh. Okay, there's so many to choose from. This is really hard. Um, one of my favourite uh, stories is actually about um, Manop, who's from Dignity Returns in Bangkok, in Thailand. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were working in a large factory in Thailand and um, the factory had really, really terrible conditions um, and you would be fined... Um, was it 2,000 baht? 2,000 yeah. baht for yawning. Which is like $80. Yeah. yeah. 
and then you would be fined a further, um, I can't remember how much it was, 300 baht for eating a lemon during your shift. And there weren't many breaks. People were working for days at a time. If they had large orders coming in, uh, the workers were actually given uh, yaba, which is a methamphetamine. Um, so they were they could stay awake for days at a time and just finish large quantities. Yeah, they gave and pregnant women these things as well, yeah, and so like it was, it's pretty horrific the story. Yeah, so the yeah pregnant women were having miscarriages. They and when the auditors would come in from overseas, they would clear clear up the factory. They would allow them in certain areas, and then they would just like after the audit had been finished, they would go back, and the factory ended up closing down due to severe mismanagement and all of these workers were left without pay they had no compensation and so what they did was like realize how horribly they'd been treated and they all came together and they protested for three months at the front of the the labor building in Thailand and they helped get the labor laws changed in Thailand and then they started their own factory where they respect each other and they take care of themselves. They are working towards the global development goals. And, yeah, it was just... Yeah, they t- when we interviewed him, he talked about... Yeah, um, it's pretty amazing. And when we talked to him, he talked about, yeah, just freedom. It was like, we have this freedom. We go home at five and we have lives, you know, outside of our jobs, which is something we kind of take for granted. I mean, some of us make ourselves busy, but we don't have to be that busy in a lot of places. But... Yeah, just that freedom to... And also, he was helping migrant workers as well. So a lot of people come into Thailand illegally and he was he was providing help for them, try and make them become legal. He was standing up to the police for them. He had learnt um, Burmese and Khmer so that he could help them. He was an incredible man. Do you have a favourite story or perhaps another story that you'd like to share about meeting with someone who's perhaps making and sewing our clothes? Yeah, so... A lot of times when we interviewed people who were making our clothes, it was really hard to get a story out of out of them because um, we'd ask them questions and they say, and they would be like, "What do you love about your job?" And they'd say, "It pays the bills, and I can, you know, I can feed my family." And you'd be like, "Oh, right, okay, privileged white person question," um, and yeah. For a lot of people, it was just a job. It wasn't their passion. It wasn't, you know, this crazy, big, amazing thing in their lives. It just helped support them in their lives. And I think, yeah, we sometimes romanticise this idea of we're going to, you know, provide jobs and it's going to be amazing and they're going to, you know, leave their best lives. And a lot of time it's more about, it's more just about, you know, providing for your family, something that, again, we take for granted it's just a, a common thing. But, yeah, we we met the, the women from Dorsu who are just lovely, lovely ladies. And they... So Kuntia had worked in garment factories before and she so, was a co-founder. So, so just share what Dorsu is, if oh, people sorry. don't know. Dorsu the... is a brand, a fashion brand that um, creates essentials from, uh, clo- from fabrics that have been left over from large garment factory production in Phnom Penh. So... They, yeah, they make all of these things. This is actually a T-shirt. Um, and so it's limited collections because they never know what they're going to get and what's going to be made. And so Kuntia and Hannah started up this brand. Hannah's Australian and Kuntia is Khmer. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a beautiful story of friendship. Um, when we interviewed them, they, there was even tears. Um, we weren't allowed to show the tears. We were told, don't show those. Cut that out. But it was really beautiful because they're best friends and they've gone through so much together and they're trying so hard. It's not easy to be ethical. You'd think it would be easier to do the right thing than to do the wrong thing, but it, it just doesn't work that way at all. And they've been through so much to try and live their values and create a brand that, you know... And I think one of the sweetest things about their story of friendship is when they first met, they couldn't speak each other's language. So uh, Kuntia learnt to speak English and Hannah learnt Khmer. So now they can speak to each other in whatever yeah. language they choose, yeah. It's fundamental, isn't it? Like this whole thing, uh, coming back to where we began, that people think that potentially fashion isn't for everyone. Fashion's a frivolous thing. Fashion's something that silly women like. 
hate that, by the way. But actually, it's fundamental. This is, this is human connection. This is craft. This is survival. It's economics. It's big business. But as fundamentally, it's relationships. That's what this is. And that's why it's such a powerful forum to make change in the world. Anyway, <laughs> I want to end, as you've just mentioned, friendship, with just before we throw this open to some questions for, from you, um, with what you guys learnt and how you kind of grew together and what you found out together and what it was like to come home. <laughs> oh, coming home was actually really a massive struggle for me because... <laughs> I was so used to having all these wonderful people come and feed us throughout the day. Um, and I did end up losing a lot of weight, so it was a good thing that I ate before we went on the trip. Um, but, yeah, and for example, when I needed to get my pants taken in, I just took them down the street and I, I showed someone, I was like, they're too big. And so she took them off me and I was like, how am I going to get these back? They're the only pair of pants I have. She stitched them, she did my hems, and she delivered them back to where we were staying, only white people in the village. And then she dropped off a kilo of lychees and bananas because she was worried I was too skinny. And I was like, I'm going from living this like magical life where I'm out in the world every day going on this grand adventure with a fantastic friend who makes me laugh every day to back to a nine to five and you know, people stuck in their bubble and not talking to each other. And it was just, it was incredibly stressful. And I, I found it really, really hard to, to get back. What did you, if you, and I'm going to move on to you, Meg, but what, if you, I'm sure you learned so very much, but if you had to think of one thing that changed you or that you learned from this experience, what might it be? Um, I think adaptability. Like, um, the, well, obviously... Um, I definitely have faith in humanity restored, but adaptability of humans. Um, I think we learnt so much from the culture in Southeast Asia in terms of they do have a minimalist start lifestyle, but it's not chosen minimalism. It's um, something that they quite often don't have a choice with. And so that means that a lot of people are fixers. So they have this fixing economy where um, you are a mechanic, you can fix your bike, you don't go buy a new one, you repair your clothes, you don't just throw them out and buy new ones, you fix things. And so it was really cool to practice, because we had to practice those skills too, because we were living out of a backpack. So practicing fixing things and tying knots and making clotheslines out of shoelaces, like, Fair. yeah, I think a human adaptability is what will help the world solve yeah. our problems. Love. I'm just going to jump on to you, Meg, and then we're going to run out of time and have questions. But tell us, what would you say was one of the real fundamental things that changed your mindset about this trip? I think, yeah, I read Satyush's story and I heard these amazing stories that he had, you know, met all these amazing people. And I didn't really expect to meet all those amazing people. But just the sheer generosity of human spirit and kindness and yeah it was incredible um how you know you could just walk up to someone and say can we stay in the temple and they'd be like oh maybe don't stay there stay at our house and we didn't speak a word of you know each other's languages and then they'd feed us this big feast and gab would cry and um <laughs> Which is actually really inappropriate in Thai culture to cry at the dinner table. <laughs> um, yeah, just an overwhelming connection to, to humans. And it was pretty spectacular. I didn't expect that to happen at all. And I'm, yeah, I just think back. It, you've kind of, it kind of go back into real life and it just is like, oh, just pick up where I left off. And then I scroll through my phone and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I did this thing with all these incredible people along the way. And it's just, yeah, it's really cool. You are fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I love it. It's a good news story. We need more of them. I'm going to throw the questions open to the audience. If you could raise your hand if you have a question for Gab or Meg. Someone has a microphone, so they're going to pop round to you. Thank you. That sounds very brave of you to do that. But obviously you were expecting to be meeting people more because you were walking, whereas in fact, if you just turned up from the bus or train or whatever you could have got, what difference would that have made to the end result of your interviews? 
And also, did you feel guilty accepting all that generosity from people who didn't have a lot? Because <laughs> that's what I've always felt in Asia, when, the, when people are so nice to you, that you feel like you're the, the white person who could afford it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. We definitely felt very awkward about accepting the generosity of strangers. Um, and we'd always try and pay it forward as much as possible. Um, but quite often people did not want to accept our yeah, money. and one time a lady tried to give me money. I think she thought <laughs> I couldn't afford the bus or something. And I was like, no, please don't give me money. And she was like, no, take this, please. And, yeah, we, we definitely felt conflicted. But also it's hard to refuse someone's kindness because that, they could also take offence to that. Um, it could also, yeah, it's maybe a bit patronising of us to think that, you know, we, yeah, we can't accept their kindness as well because it, it, it was so amazing. Um, but, yeah, so many times we tried to pay and they weren't yeah. having it. And we, in terms of, um, sorry, the meeting people on the road, if we were able to do that, it would have been amazing. But we didn't have a full-time translator. We couldn't afford it. And we may have had more of those instances if we did. Um, Talk about the time we ran into a weaver's village. And then <laughs> there's one time we were just walking through northern Thailand and we did actually come across a weaving village. In Thailand they have this program called One Town, One Product and they encourage um, people with government subsidies to make things in their town. So these women, it was so cool, they were growing their own cotton, they were weaving it, they were dyeing it with natural dyes we did not know they were there. We just rocked up and we pointed and we were like, can we have a look around? And she was like, yeah, sure, why not? And we spent the next hour and a half playing dress-ups with this woman. And she put us in all of her clothes. She put her skirts on us. She took photos with us. All completely Indian. in Thai and English. Like, we had no language in common whatsoever. But it was the best fun. Yeah. That is a good answer to that question. We have time for another couple. Anyone... There's a lady here in the blue who's... Thank you, you a for... lady. <laughs> Thank you for the talk today. I've actually really appreciated you seeing it as an art form as well because I actually co-founded a label here in Adelaide and so I see the process as well. And we use recycled and reclaimed materials so I know how much it takes to put it all together. Um, and we're also double as a not-for-profit to provide employment for women of refugee backgrounds. But I guess the major thing that we come across is people love the idea around ethical and sustainable fashion, but they don't necessarily want to pay for it. And But I, what I also see is that maybe people don't want to pay for ethical, sustainable fashion, but then if there's a brand that's already established or they really love, they're willing to fork out that money because that brand's around, even if they're not ethical and sustainable. So my thought, my, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on what ethical and sustainable fashion labels can do to continue to, I guess, be there and um, I guess make our way in an industry that's already got so many other brands who might not be already doing the right thing? Great question. I think that's one for Meg. Yeah, so... Yes, I, I totally get your point that as soon as a, a bigger brand releases a sustainable collection, it's like, oh, they're amazing and we're going to buy it up and it's fantastic. But those smaller brands that are working their butts off to create things. I'd say in terms of those smaller brands, for me, I think it comes down to a business smart. It's not, not fun or sexy or, you know, a beautiful thing, but really getting the business down um, to what your USP is and, you know, just getting that, nutting that out and working out how will I make money, is there a market for this? Because there is a lot of a sustainable fashion out there and it's hard, to, it's a hard sell. It's a really hard sell. There are so many brands out there that are struggling. I have got something to add to that just from a kind of vogue perspective, which is it's so fantastic what you're doing. Keep doing it. Yes. And actually the power of storytelling, come and see me after, I want to know. The power of storytelling is never to be underestimated. And if you can get your story out there, people are going to love it. I love it, just listening. So I think in a way, just keep doing what you're doing and remember that it's about communicating the story. That's why people will care. 
Yeah, we, the biggest gap that we found with all of the brands we visited was marketing and advertising because quite often they didn't have enough money to keep doing what they were doing, let alone do marketing. But that's one of the most important things you can do because you've got to have someone to sell it to. Do we have another question? Hi, congratulations to Gab and Meg for doing such an amazing job on their journey. Um, I heard a statistic the other day that every second a garbage truck full of textiles gets burned because we are so wasteful. What are a couple of tips for the average consumer who wants to have a more sustainable and ethical um, way of living, especially with fashion? What are just some things that you can do if you're not really sure how to start? I'll let you guys answer this, but I would just like to say that the enormity of textile waste in globally, but also in Australia, is gobsmacking. And we all have a part to play in this, and we all need to know. Um, Australians produce, Australians consume the second highest amount of textiles and clothing in the world after North America, and we throw it away at an alarming rate. No textile should ever end up in landfill. There's always a solution. I could go on about this, but I mean, we've really got to, as a community, get together and try to change our, our habits. And of course, we need regulation and we need buy-in and help from the government and from business. But we also need to not throw stuff away and buying clothes to chuck them out is insanity. Yeah, I think really connecting to the story of how your clothes were made and just doing the research and Getting, so, like I said before, if you have that connection to a piece of clothing, you're not going to throw it away. It's not going to end up in landfill because you just couldn't. It would break my heart to throw out something. I mean, we got a top from those women at the Weaving Village. We bought one of them. They tried to give it to us. We weren't having it. But um, I couldn't imagine throwing that away. I've met these people. I've seen the process. There's so much love that goes into the product. I, yeah, I think really creating that connection is so, so important. And I'm going to oversimplify things here just because of time constraints. But if you do want to make uh, changes as an individual, buy less, buy well, know what you're buying, and um, fix your stuff rather than throw it out. And I, I do just want to add something because I was so negative and I want to be <laughs> positive in this conversation. Um, in answer to what sorts of things can we do to help as individuals, there are lots of creative ways that we can change our waste habits. Um, for instance, with fashion, if you love getting new clothes, which I love, um, do things like swaps, hold swaps with your friends, make it into a social event, buy secondhand when you can, buy things that are great quality that you know when you're done with them, someone else will find value. Yeah, and renting. I think renting is going to be a huge thing um, in the sustainable fashion, you know, arena. I think renting is fantastic. Fab. Do we, we have time for one more? Or no more? There's one over there. <laughs> oh, yes, please. <laughs> oh. Um, the question was, where to from here for Gab and Meg? Brilliant question. Thank you. So we interviewed over 50 people, um, different, you know, organisations, brands and everything. We are still editing those videos. <laughs> We're about halfway through. I think we overestimated our speed and um, how much we would want to do at the end of a 25-kilometre day. So we're still editing away. Um, and also there's uh, so much... So much that we can't share in a three-minute video, and so I'm writing a book, I think, I hope. Um, it will get written, but after all the videos are done, which could be, you know, 2025, maybe, what do you think? Yeah. When the videos are done, 2025? Years. Year? Yeah. 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 Sure. So, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> Gab, a last word? No, I think Megan nailed it. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming to this session. Talking of books, I wrote one. If anyone would like to have a signed copy, I will be signing Copies of Wardrobe Crisis, which is all about trying to decode how this system works and try to find solutions to how we can make it more healthy for people and planet. Thank you. It's really good. Thank you.